Say It With Guitars. I'm your host, Pete Cornelius. Each episode, I'll be digging deep and getting to hang with some of Australia's finest guitar pickers, songwriters, producers, collectors, and makers. I look forward to bringing you these fun conversations and I hope you enjoy Say It With Guitars. Hey, thanks for joining us, folks, for another episode. It's been a busy few weeks since the last little drop. Um, yeah, I played a fun gig with a band called Let the Cat Out, which is a band that existed about 10 years ago. We um, put a few records out over the years and um, yeah, it was really nice to hang out with those fine folk and play some cool funky jams. It's great. Also been busy back in the studio with uh, Ange Boxel. She's a singer-songwriter from down here in, in the east coast of Tassie, just sort of finishing off the last stages of her record. So. Excited to get that out in the near future. Stay tuned. And yeah, had a great chat with Jess Zabkovich, another fellow Tasmanian guitar picker. And I hope you enjoyed the chat. Cheers. Before we crack into today's show, I'd like to shout out to our sponsor, Mr. Billy Tarrant from Tarrant Guitars. Billy's an amazing luthier and he makes some real sweet instruments. I'm lucky enough for him to have built me a double O size acoustic guitar which I've dragged all around the country and it's sounding better than ever. So yeah, check out tarrantguitars.net.au. Tessie's one-stop custom workshop for custom-made guitars, all guitar repairs and services. Let's get into the show. All right, I'd like to welcome to today's <laughs> podcast, Sato Guitars, Jess Zubkovich. How are you doing? Hey, good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Sorry, we're just having a quick laugh because I've been mispronouncing your surname. It's not the easiest one to roll off the tongue, so apologies, and hopefully no, uh, good. there's no insult. Not at all, not at all. Excellent. How How is your, what are we, Wednesday, how's your Wednesday? What have you been up to today, Jess? I've uh, just been uh, working at my day job today, um, down at Mate and Guitars, so also guitar related and Absolutely. yeah, it's been a busy week so far. Yeah, That's great. So um, you're playing guitar, you're your, your day job's involved around guitars and I've noticed you've been guitar teching a bit as well. You've been like full on mm. guitar heavy. That's great. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, it's, um, a little bit about your job at Maiden maybe since, since we're sort of halfway there? Yeah. Yeah, I've always sort of worked in the music industry. Um, obviously I'd love to make my living from playing guitar but easier said than done so – um, yeah, I've worked in a lot of music shops and about six years ago I started working at Mason when I moved to Melbourne. Um, so my job there now is uh, it's a few different things because it's it's a kind of a small business um, and so you usually wear a few different hats while you're there. Um, I don't build the guitars but I, I, um, I'm a sales rep so I sell, sell guitars uh, to stores in Australia and also do production scheduling, which is really interesting. So, oh, right. yeah, and a few other bits and pieces around the place. So, so yeah. what is that? What does that detail? The production scheduling. Uh, yeah, well, it's um, it's pretty complex sort of sort of thing. So it's it's basically choosing which guitars um, the guys and girls on the floor are going to build every week. So depending on what orders we have it have in oh, our cool. system, yep. um. 
and also what sort of things people can make and stuff like that. So, yeah, we've got certain guitars that we can make a lot of and some we can't make it, um, as many of. So, yeah, just kind of balancing things out. Yeah. Cool. Does that come down to timber availability as well? Or is that- yeah, it can do. So, um, yeah, we've got um, pretty good supply chain and timber uh, management going on. So we've usually got enough timber in the building, but, um, once it, once it comes in, it needs to be dried for about four months, some of it. Um, so it can be a bit of a process. So you usually, yeah, I can't just decide one week I'm going to make every guitar with rosewood because then we'd run out of rosewood. So it's sort of, um, yeah, managing some of that as well, which is interesting. Yeah. That's great. That's really cool. And does that mean you get to travel around a bit as well to different stores around, I suppose COVID's sort of been a bit funny in that relationship to to travelling, but uh, I don't know, do you come down to Tassie, stuff like that, and sort of hang out with the stores down here and try and well, talk shop? Funny you mentioned that. Funny funny you mentioned that, actually, because I'm going to Tassie tomorrow. <laughs> How are you? Well, there you go. Um, yeah. Um, and I haven't been to visit um, the, the two stores that we, we sell maintenance to uh, in Tassie for uh, – yeah, two and a half years or something like that. So, yeah, yeah I'll be heading down to Hobart and then, yeah, um, yeah just chatting, chatting with the guys and seeing Sweet. what's happening down there and then then up to Launceston. So, yeah. Yep. And, uh, yeah, get across to South Australia a bit and all throughout Melbourne. So, yeah, it's a pretty cool job getting to go, go into guitar shops and see what's happening and, yeah, and then spending time at the factory as well and, yeah, being involved in all that. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. That's great. And do you get to um, hang out with any artists come in, like with custom orders, things like that, or or sort of artist spec things? Like is there any, any sort of relations like that? Yeah, yeah, a bit. Um, we, we do have a custom shop at Maintenance, so like I'll often be involved in specking up the custom shop guitars. Um, a few really cool ones happened kind of before my time at Maintenance, so I think John Fogarty came in once because oh. um, he'd seen the Wiggles playing the Maintenance guitar. <laughs> so he called up the factory actually. He cold called the factory and asked if he could come in, um, wow. which I wish I was there for because that would have been amazing, yeah. Would but, um, really yeah, amazing. Tommy Manuel and John Butler really comes amazing. in a lot, uh, Neil Finn, yeah, people like that. So, yeah, it's good. Less so. Uh, recently with COVID, um, so hopefully it'll, it all sort of starts back up again, and yep. that sort of stuff starts happening. That's great. Yeah, it would have been would have been quite the day, like a, like a John Fogarty cold call. Yeah, I wouldn't believe it, really, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, and you've mentioned Adelaide. So, have you spent most of your sort of, I guess, younger life in Adelaide? Did you grow up in South Australia? Yeah, I've sort of grown up all over really. But, um, yeah, I, I was born in Tassie. Um, my mum's family's all from, from Launceston and, uh, we moved to Northern New South Wales when I was about three till 10. And then from Adelaide after that. Um, so yeah, I started playing guitar and playing music once I'd moved to Adelaide. So yeah, yeah that's right. where I grew up gigging and sort of all my formative years, I guess. Yeah. Yep. What was the what was the thing that sort of sparked your interest into the guitar, like things that you heard on television or saw on TV or the radio or your, your folks got into music or what was the like little spark that got you into guitar? Uh, my mum's pretty musical so she she plays sort of more key, keyboard sort of piano kind of thing and my dad always wanted to play guitar and he, he loved music so um, we'd always have some kind of cheap guitar lying around and I'd see my mum playing Wild Thing on it which yeah. is – 
that's sort of yeah what I was into and my my great grandpa so her her grandfather he was he was a sort of professional guitarist by night in Launceston in the I guess the 50s 60s 70s um and he played like sort of western swing Hawaiian country music and things like that and I'd always go to his house when I was little little um little kid and there'd be this room full of guitars and double neck guitars and big amps and Sweet. and all these things. And so I'd always want to have a look in that room. And I think, um, you know, he passed away when I was only four. So unfortunately I didn't really get to see yeah. him play too much, but definitely inspired me like knowing that he played guitar and seeing the photos. So that was probably, yeah, one of the reasons why I wanted to start playing, I think. Absolutely, especially that sort of quirky, sort of double neck, sort of steel orientated, or, or Western swing, or Hawaiian sort of music like that. For me, just seemed like another world away when I was a kid. But to have that um, as part of the family sort of sound, I think that's, that's very cool. Very, very guitar-y. Yeah, um, he he did a lot of his own little recordings on cassette tapes and stuff like that. So even more recently, we'd still like listen back to them. So still worked, which was good, and yeah. looked through his old sheet music and, and things like that. And the guitars still exist in the house that he used to live in. So his son, uh, my great uncle, lives there now, and yep. the guitars are still in the house. Like no one's, no one's sort of been able to split them up. So even though it's been literally thirty years since he passed away, they're still in that in his music room. Wow. Um, yeah, and still still in the same place. So yeah. Yeah. Does anybody else in the family play as well? Um, my brother and sister do a bit. Um, yeah, over there in Tassie where the guitars are, um, yeah, what, I think one or two of my cousins have started to play now, like some of my little cousins. So so it's yep. good good to have some more musos in the family. Yeah. yeah. Can't have too many. No. That's cool. So um, after having a bit of a listen to the tracks you sent me for the last few days, it sounds like we're on similar paths, I think, as inspiration. I could hear a lot of... A lot of the Texas sort of Steve Ray Vaughan approach to to guitar and your early work was he was he mm. quite an influence for you, Jess? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was just one of the first things that I sort of heard that I thought, oh wow, I really want to play that. That's really really cool. It was really exciting. Um, I think the first thing that kind of got me into it was some of the other guys at school who were playing guitar. They were doing. Um, they did the Steve Ray Vaughan cover of Little Wing at a school concert once and I was yep. just like they literally played it note for note all yep. the way through and I was like, what is this song? And that was, yeah, after I heard that I just wanted to learn everything. Whereas I think before that I liked to play guitar and I was playing chords and but I didn't really have any direction or anything that I really, really liked, even though I, lo- I loved guitar. I just didn't have a, yeah, a thing that was my my thing that I was into, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was my my introduction to guitar-y guitar players, I think, because, yeah, like you hear a lot of cool guitar on on mainstream music at that time and it was, you know, it was a pretty good time to play, play guitar. Um, but to hear someone mm. like Steve Ray Vaughan just taking that song, like Little Wing, yeah, that blew my mind when I heard that. I think it was on a videotape I had. It was like a, a video of the Fender Customer Shop for all these like strats and things and then that video, I mean that, that song was playing. I was like, wow, that's that was pretty incredible. So Yeah. And I can hear the amp, amp buzzing as well in the Absolutely. In the background of on that song. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Pretty inspiring, it's, I think. How did you get onto that? Was that through magazines and things? Or or did you say that was through school 
Three guys playing it at school? Yeah, three people at school. Like, yeah, uh, um, a few other guys at school were, were pl- into that kind of stuff. And I think I asked my guitar teacher at school, can I can I learn how to play Little Wing? And he'd been giving me like, hopefully he doesn't listen to this, um, Powderfinger <laughs> and all these kind of songs that I was not into. And I was like pretty bored. And I was like, can I can I learn Little Wing? And um, and he he actually printed me out the music, but then he never showed me how to play it. So wow. I quit. I think I quit my guitar lessons maybe a week after that and I yeah. started to, yeah, learn by myself and, you know, watching videos and things like that. Um, and I was, yeah, found my own path after that, you know. Yeah. What sort of age were you when you first started doing that kind of teaching yourself stuff? Uh, yeah, probably, probably around like 15. So just maybe like two years after I started playing. Yep. Um, yeah, just sort of got into my my own stuff. I was pretty heavy into blues, so yep. Yeah, it's obviously not the hardest style of music to kind of teach yourself and work on on your own because a lot of it's about feel and things like that. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's cool. And um, using the old uh, tab crawler and stuff like that on the internet, the old tab tab sites back in the day as yep. well. And was that a Steve Ray Vaughan Strat? I saw you play on. Some of those YouTubes, the yeah, left hand trim. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. so I, yeah, I um I got that one when I I lived in London for two years when I was when I was twenty, and um I think I, as soon as I I didn't go over there with a guitar because I wanted to buy a new one when I got there, of course, cool. and um I bought a cheaper Strat and took it home and I was like, oh, it doesn't feel right, and I, I went into London into Denmark Street, which is the the street with all the music shops. Yep, and I think I saw that guitar up on the on the wall and I was like, all right, I'm going to give this one a go. And as soon as I had a go, it just like felt like the easiest guitar to play, something about it. Every I could just bend so easy. I was like, I actually returned the other guitar and bought that one <laughs> instead. So, yeah. That's cool. I had to take the SRV off, off the um, pit guard because, I yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You can't play um, as well as him, so you can't really have his initials on there. <laughs> yeah, there's only one Steve Ray Vaughan. So I, I totally – I actually did a similar thing. I had um, a friend of mine in Sydney um, looking out for a Strat for me and he saw a Steve Ray Vaughan Strat. I think it might have been at Bondi Music or something like that and um, it already had a mint green plate on it. So I was like, sweet. So, but it came with the Steve Ray Vaughan plate as well, which is good to have. Awesome. But, yeah, definitely it was nice to not – Have you be, still uh, got that guitar? I do. I love it. Sounds mighty. Yeah. I've had a lot of strats actually. I've had probably 10 strats, not at once. And, um, yeah, that's the one that, that stuck. Um, something about the, the neck and the, I think that it's got a bit of a flatter fretboard radius, which I like and bigger frets and yep. it always felt easy to, easy to bend on. And, um, yeah, the pickups, yeah, they're not the typical strat sound, but they're, yeah, I'm really into it. So, so the only one I've kept. <laughs> I was going to say, you've still got, yeah, still got that guitar. Yeah, I've still got it. It's actually in uh, Noosa with my brother at the moment because not really playing Strat, but I can't, I don't want to sell it. So I'm yeah. like, he, he wanted a guitar to borrow. So I said, well, you can borrow that one. Just make sure you look after it. <laughs> yeah, strict orders. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Very cool. So what, what brought the move to um, the UK? Like I know that typically with, with blues music, um, you know, America is the homeland. It's the it's the king of all blues orientated musics. Really, what what was the move to the UK? Was there a friend or family connection, or what was happening there? 
Um, I think I think a lot of it was to do with just the the ease of getting over to the UK and getting a visa and things like that. Um, you know, it's pretty easy for Australians who are under thirty two, I think it is, to get that you know two year working yep. holiday visa. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas I would not have known where to start with uh, with the US. I also had connections with a few people over there that I'd met kind of on the internet, um, other other musicians, and so I felt like I knew a few people. And it didn't feel like too much of a stretch from Australia, you know, if, um, even though I'd never been overseas or lived out of home and I just decided <laughs> to do both at once, Yeah, <laughs> uh, go over to the other side of the world. Um, uh, but I, I had heard through my friends over there, there that there was like a bit of a blue scene happening. So I, I figured there'd be um, enough places to play and, and I, I was really obsessed with like Amy Winehouse, so all of that kind of stuff was going on around that time because it was I yep. think it was two thousand and eight when I went over there. So there was like blues and soul, like English sort of style um, yep. happening. And you know, I just hoped when I moved over there that I'd bump into her at the pub or something like that, which unfortunately didn't happen. But um, yeah. Yeah, cool. So, did you live in in the in the in the middle of London, like, or did you sort of move out a bit in the burbs to sort of, I don't know, make it a bit more affordable? Or how was how was living costs and stuff like that at the time? Yeah, oh, it's very expensive. Like, you even think, I think now, and I compare it to what I pay to rent in Melbourne. You know, like fifteen years later or whatever it is, and uh, it was still more expensive than what I'm paying now. So. Um, at first I lived um, sort of in Surrey, which is about an hour out of central London because um, my friend who I knew had a had a spare room at her flat. Yep. So that was sort of an easy, easy way to get over there and feel pretty safe with it. But um figured out pretty quickly that there wasn't much going on in that town and being in, the, in central London was sort of where it was at. So for the second year I lived there, I was living uh, east, east London, um, Bethnal Green, which is like pretty close to central and you know, most of the blues clubs and stuff are in Soho and sort of any of that sort of central London around Oxford Street sort of area. So I was yep. very close to everything from that point on and yep. made it a lot easier to go out and not have to worry about, you know, catching that last train to get back to back to Surrey. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it was good. There was quite a lot of clubs that had opened up at that time as well. So it was mm-hmm. at least... I don't know you could almost blues jam every single night of the week. So you rock up at one of those venues and get up and jam with people, and that's sort of what I did to start off with when I when I lived over there. Yeah, it's definitely a good way to network and introduce yourself to other people in the same same sort of vibe. You know, like you get out to those blues jams and make a name for yourself and hang out with some people and yeah, make some connections. Definitely a good way to do it. I know. Um, definitely. I think oh, what's what's one club in the Soho called? Is it um, still got the blues or something like that? Something ain't nothing with, but the blues. Ain't nothing but yeah. I remember having a going in yeah. there one night, watching some tunes, and it's a cool little tiny little bar. Yeah, oh, it's 
Yeah, we used to play there probably every two weeks. Um, once yep. I had an actual band going, and we're doing little three set gigs there, and yeah, it, like even midweek it could get pretty pretty raucous, and there'd always be a good crowd. Um, I think it was one of those things that's probably in the Lonely Planet book or whatever. So people coming to London yeah. would always come and check it out. So <laughs> yeah, it's good good crew of musicians around there, and lots of tourists, of course. How did you go with um? putting a band together or did you sort of slot into a pre-existed band that were chasing a guitar player or how did that evolve? Just through the jams actually. Um, yeah, just going every week I sort of made friends with um, a few other people my age because I was only, yeah, like 21. Uh, and the the jam sort of age range was from, yeah, like 20 years old up to 60. So there's a big wide range of people and um, I made friends with uh, this girl is a couple of years older than me, older than me, called Beth, and she's a singer. And we used to always get up and play together. And then, yeah, we joined up with a drummer and a bass player who were also in their mid twenties, and yeah, started a band from that. Just because we all got along, and we all, you know, you kind of get to audition playing with each other during the jam, I guess. And so you kind of knew from doing enough jams with them that we were probably going to work as a band. And yeah, it it did, and we played. Yeah, over the last year that I was there, we played maybe two or three gigs a week and did yep. our own little EP and some original songs. And yeah, it was right. really fun. And did you take it on the road a bit? Did you head over to Europe or anything like that? Or what did you do with the band after you sort of formed and did the EP? I wish we did, yeah. Yeah, should should have done that. We did some stuff in the UK, um, yep. but we didn't get out of out of, um, out of of the UK. It would have been great to, yeah, go over to Holland or Germany, I think, seeing as I was the only one who was like Australian. I think I was a bit concerned about like my visa and stuff like that. I was like, I don't want to go to Europe and then not be allowed back in or whatever. Yeah. So it was probably, yeah. probably my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. Um, how did you go? So was that your only form of employment over there while you're hanging out in, in London or did you sort of get some sort of day job to sort of keep things afloat? Yeah. I had a little side job, um, just at HMV, which is kind of like yeah. JB Hi-Fi, I guess. For Australians, yeah, it's like the English version of that. And, um, yeah, that was on Oxford Street, so I was just like, you know, working in a CD shop basically. But, yeah, it was interesting because, um, yeah, and we had like Paul Weller came in and Jamie Hintz from The Kills and yep. Pete Burns from Dead or Alive. Like a lot of celebrities would come into shop as well, which was quite, kind of funny. Oh, right. That is cool. Yeah. Was there any in-store shows, any artists yeah. coming to do in-stores or anything? Um. Not heaps while I was there, yeah. But I know, like, because there was two um, HMVs on Oxford Street, and I think I might have been the slightly smaller one, and the other uh, one was the one where they did right. more of the in stores. That sure. really massive one, yeah. That's the one I'm thinking of. I think yeah. Yeah, it's on the corner of. Yeah. 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 Wicked. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's definitely something I think most people should try and do is is to sort of break free from the home comforts and um, try and try and make, the, make a hustle somewhere else and meet some extra people and just, just see how people interpret music in different areas. It's such a wonderful thing, wonderful learning thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it really, really changed my outlook and, and, and me as a person as well, like getting to experience that. And I was young enough where 
I didn't really care about money and I was happy to be very poor and, um, yeah, just, just play gigs most of the time. And, um, yeah. And as far as playing as well, it's like I'd grown up playing blues guitar in my bedroom and then going there and playing, playing with other people and seeing what everyone else was into. Yeah. Changed my outlook a lot. You know, it probably wasn't as cool to rip off all the Stevie Ray licks at that point. So in London, they, people there were more into BB King and, um, Freddie King and, um, yeah. Yeah, like those sort of sort of guys and they didn't really like, they're like, why are you bringing a tube screamer to the blues jam? So sort of, yeah, taught me <laughs> right. a few things, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So um, back home in Adelaide before before you moved to London, were you playing around a bit? Like did you form yourself a little band or did you sort of sit in with some dudes or how did that all, did you get any like live, live experience back in Adelaide? Yeah, got a little bit like my brother, my brother and sister and I. We had a little band. It, it wasn't a blues band because because they hated blues, but it was more of a kind of indie rock band where we kind of wrote our own songs and recorded our own little things at home. Um, we did a few gigs around town, uh, but then I'd sit in with um, with some older guys that would that had some blues bands, so I'd sit in with them occasionally, and that was. But I only kind of did that maybe four or five times, and then I then I headed overseas, and that's where yeah, right. I got most of my experience. Yeah. Yep. It's cool. It's quite an interesting way to do it. I, I suppose. Um, well, I don't know if there's a is a traditional way of doing it at all, but I guess most people sort of generate a bit of a career and then like head off and then try and expand it. But that's you've sort of like gone overseas quite quite green, I suppose, in that respect, and. Um, just sort of opened the doors for for learning, just sort of like taking as much of another culture in as you can and just sort of really learning and growing as an artist before you've got too many bad habits <laughs> or um, not bad, you know, yeah, um, musical habits perhaps. Yeah. Well, I did I did um, like a cert four on a diploma or half of a diploma of music at TAFE before I went to London, um, yeah, right. which was great sort of background but I think what like actually going overseas and playing guitar in bands for two years sort of was actually better learning experience for me in the end so yeah yeah it's good to have a bit of the theoretical background and then actually going and and, and playing was really good yeah absolutely and so you sort of took a bit of a turn from that Texas style blues because um, I know that every time I've seen you play I, I can't hear any of that anymore you've sort of I know <laughs> um, you, you've gone more down the kind of Brian Setzer, kind of Chris Cheney sort of vibe with the with the Gretsch and um, a bit of a bit of work on the Bigsby. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Did you hear hear that music from somewhere, or did you like get introduced to it? Like, how, what was the what was the introduction to that sort of style of guitar playing? I'm trying to think of what the actual introduction was, and I can't even remember. I think I actually just really liked the look of the Gretsch guitars, mm-hmm. and I was so sick of strats. And like I said, I'd gone through so many, and I was like, I need a different guitar. And I was like, what can I, what can I buy now? And I think as I got into Gretsch, I must have started researching Gretsch guitarists and heard Brian Setzer, of course, and yeah. saw Poison Ivy from the Cramps, who was a big influence too. Uh, and then I just st- started really liking like surf music and some of that sort of guitar instrumental stuff like Dwayne Eddy and yeah, yeah. and Link Ray and and that kind of stuff and and um lots of reverb and and whammy bar and and that sort of sound yeah just got kind of got into that instead and as soon as I got my Gretsch guitar I just didn't play anything else for basically for ten years so yeah pretty into the Bigsby and it became a huge part of my my style as well and. 
yeah, definitely complete. I completely changed my style. Of, yeah, to split personality or something. I don't know. <laughs> So was that a, like a bit of a subconscious decision, do you think? Like that just happened naturally or did you go, oh, I'm kind of like really, I need a change or I'm not, not enjoying this sort of style of music that I've been playing for a long time. I need a bit of a, a new new take or like thing behind it, do you think? Might have been a bit bored, I think, probably. And just coming back to Adelaide and not having anyone to play with um, and not really knowing people who liked blues as much. I needed something to dif- different to do and not. And I'm not a singer. So I think if I was a singer, I probably yeah. would have kept playing blues. Um, but because I didn't sing, I, yeah, I sort of like, and I was, st- I was still young as well. So I was still learning about different types of music that I liked. And, um, yeah, I think I, I had got, got a bit bored. Like when, when, when we were playing in London, we are doing three set gigs and it was like, you know, 16 songs a set or something and every song was a 12 bar format yeah. so it was kind of like yeah yeah I was looking for something else not not that um the kind of rockabilly psychabilly stuff is any more complex than blues but it was just something a bit different and maybe a bit yep. more attitude a bit more kind of raucous um yeah not as technical as well and I kind of liked like yep. kind of the wildness of it I guess yeah absolutely yeah, I, I definitely um, – coming from that structured blues sound, like it, it is a free-form music but it, it does have elements of its structure and its arrangement and it sort of fits in a form and especially once you, once you get a few blues purists coming to gigs, they, you know, they want to hear a certain style of thing. Whereas I think, yeah, that kind of rockabilly, psychabilly vibe is just more about the energy and about the, the raucous – approach and the freedom to kind of just get noisy and and I guess it has that just that punk ethos you know yeah yeah attitude which as a young Definitely. player yeah. it just you know I, th- I think that's just what naturally you, you want to you know have in there as well a bit of that young angst you yeah. know yeah and it's always fun to play it live you know because you can really sort of jump around on stage if you want because you're not trying to worry about playing everything perfectly just yeah bend the whammy bar as much as you want you know? <laughs> Yeah, just drench it in reverb and off you go. Yeah. 
I was speaking of reverb. Um, uh, when I was in LA once, I went to see Dick Dale perform, and he had two amazing two showmans. They are um, like the blonde Fender showmans, and you had the Fender reverb tank like suspended from the ceiling because it was just otherwise it just what? would have like <laughs> wobbled. You know, when you walk past the spring reverb, they just make that. Yeah, ghosty sound. So he had this thing like this awesome reverb tank sound. hanging off the ceiling. I was like, wow, Dick Dale. It was so cool. Wow. So was it loud? loud? <laughs> Fucking so loud. Yeah. <laughs> it was insane. And the guy I was staying with yeah. um, oh, that- knew the drummer. So we got to hang out with the drummer backstage and stuff. I didn't get to see Dick, but um, yeah, just talking to the drummer, he's like, my ears are so shot. Like, yeah, got those two amps cranked. Yeah. Oh. I bet that would be, yeah, amazing to see. I think the only only kind of surf band or international sort of surf band that I've got to see live is um, Lost Straight Jackets. Have you yeah. heard of them? Yeah. Yeah, they, they wear the sort of Mexican wrestling masks. Um, yeah, I guess that's the other thing I like about El Pinto music. guitars, is it? El Pinto or something like that? Or with the yeah. same guitar? Yeah, they've all got matching guitars. I'm I'm totally into matching outfits and matching guitars for bands as well. Yeah. So that's probably why I was into the the kind of surf music thing because there's often often that element to it. Um, yep. Yeah. That's cool. And did you get to see much music when you are in London? Was there some big names that you got to go and see, like Jeff Beck? Um, or, I was very, you know? very, very poor. So um, yeah. I didn't have a whole lot of money, but then I just thought about it. I actually did see a few people. So I, I, um, I'm not so much into him, but I did see Joe Bonamassa uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, okay. um, which was actually the con- that he filmed that DVD for. Um, oh, that's that one. Yep. Also saw yeah. I also saw Derek. As far as guitarists, I saw um, Derek Trucks band, which was Great. awesome uh, at Shepherd's Bush. And probably like my favourite one that I saw was um, the Archangels. Oh yeah. So Doyle Bramhall II, Charlie uh, who's Sexton. one of my favourite guitarists, and Charlie yeah. Sexton, uh, Chris Layton, yeah. um, Tommy Shannon wasn't playing bass. I think someone else was. But yeah, that was amazing show. And the the venue actually wasn't that that big either. It was maybe like the size of the corner hotel or something like that. Sure. So yeah, it was pretty amazing to see those guys in in the flesh. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah, really good. That first album, that debut album they did is so good. I got given that. Um, I must have been about 16 or 17. I remember driving around in McKingswood. I'd installed a CD player in it and that was on like all the time. I just love that record. Yeah, it's so good. And even now you listen back to it and it's still still great, I think. Yeah. Um, I think it's still got it's got a bit of that kind of early 90s sort of production sheen to it. But, it, yeah, it's just it's killer. Like the songs are amazing and yeah, the two the guitarists as well. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan. And they, they reformed this year, I noticed. They did a, another tour of Texas or something like that. It was without Didn't Tommy Shannon. Didn't actually know that. Yeah. So they got together and yeah. played all those great tunes. Uh, I think there's some YouTube footage. Mm. If, you, if you remember after their chat today, yeah, definitely go and check it out. Yeah. Wicked band. Check it out. Um, yeah, I guess another guitarist that I kind of got into um, after I sort of changed my style a bit um, was uh, Nick Curran. I don't oh, know if yeah. you're into him. Absolutely. From, from Austin. Like, yeah. Because he, that was like, his aesthetic was something I really liked because he was like a blues guitarist, but he played like kind of either a pink or a green sparkly guitar and he dressed really punk. 
but he still yeah. kind of had that old school vibe in his guitar playing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he's definitely one of my favourites and I was, yeah, pretty devastated as I'm sure a lot of people were when he passed away. Yeah, um, far too young. Because he's just phenomenal talent, that guy. Like his singing voice as well. It's just pretty ridiculous, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Did you ever get to see him live? No, I didn't. Um, spewing that I didn't. I did get to hang out with his bass player, Preston Hubbard, in St. Louis when I was in the States. Got to stay at his house for a few days and he was playing with Nick at the time. Oh, wow. And I just sort of chewed his ear off about that kind of material and recordings and gigs and things like that. And it was funny hearing his take on mm. it because he – because, you know, Nick's vibe is to go down there at Fort Horton um, studio and kind of make it sound like it was done in the 50s and 60s, you know, like a sort of old school flat sort of tones. And Preston was like, oh – no nah, man, we, you know, I'd love to shake Nick's old school vibe a bit and sort of get him a bit more contemporary and yeah. playing to a newer sort of. I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know, I kind of like what he does. <laughs> but yeah. um, no, I love it. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And his work with the Fabulous Thunderbirds is great too. Have you heard that with him and Kirk Fletcher? Mm. Yeah, and I've seen some of the videos on on YouTube where he's he's dressed like like Sid Vicious or something and he's playing a like a pink Jackson car yeah. and the blues purists are probably like, who the hell is this guy? What is he doing? But he, but yeah. he sounds like Jimmy Vaughan. Like he's, yeah, yeah he's killer. Yeah. I reckon that's what got kidding, getting kicked out of the um, T-Birds though. I don't reckon Kim would have you been reckon? too. Yeah. I don't know. I don't reckon Kim was too cool yeah. with him going with that vibe. And what was that record, that last yeah. um, record Nick put out? Reform Schoolgirl, is it? Yeah, they're kind of more like girl group kind of punk. Sonic yeah. sort of sounding yeah. thing. And, yeah, that's a really, really kind of um, distorted sort of dirty sounding recording, like in the best best kind of way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it could be from, yeah, from the 60s or something. Yeah, definitely shame to have lost that amazing talent. Yeah, Nick was great. Mm. So, yeah, listeners, if you haven't heard Nick Curran, go and dig up some Nick Curran. Um, he did a few records on his own with The Nightlifes. Um, I think there's about four records. And then there was that last one just before he passed away. But, yeah, he's on Fabulous Thunderbirds. What was that record called? Painted Painted On or something like that? Uh, it was Painted On. Yeah. Yeah. And did he play with Kim Lenz as well? Yeah, that's more of that rockabilly kind of stuff, which I haven't listened to those records as much. Um, but what I have listened to, yeah, he was brilliant at that as well. And he's just a great sort of jump blues guitarist, I guess. Yeah. A bit of that sort of sw- swing vibe to it as well. Yeah. Yeah, big fan. Big fan. Good, good. <laughs> Thumbs up from me. So let's let's think about what we got up to. So you're in London, you're hanging out, you're seeing some music. You moved to Melbourne after Adelaide. What was the draw card there? Was it a, a work-orientated thing? Like you thought there was more music potential down in Melbourne? Oh, I'd been wanting to go there for a while, like for the for the music scene, really, because um, the band that I was playing in Adelaide, the Villainettes, were like a yeah, so, kind of rockabilly, surfy band, and we'd we go and play in Melbourne every three months or so.
we just kind of made friends with a lot of lot of bands down there and we're like, oh, seems like a really, you know, great city to be in. Um, and after living in London, obviously going back to Adelaide was a bit of a shock because yeah. pretty different vibe. Um, but uh, I was actually in a long-distance relationship with someone who was living in Melbourne and after about almost a year I was like, screw this, I'm moving to Melbourne. You know, I've always wanted to live there anyway, so may as well just yep. just uh, just do it and, um, yeah, decided pretty quickly to do it because I'd put it off for about five years, you know, since I got back from London. I was like, I'm oh, going to move to Melbourne and I would threaten to do it every two weeks or so, but they never did it. So, yeah, had to make that that decision and, yeah, headed over here and, yeah, oh, it's an, a great place to be. Like, it's yeah, there's so many music venues, so many great musicians. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on, so it's pretty exciting. Yeah, Except absolutely. for the last two years. <laughs> yeah, the last few years yeah. have definitely been a – a struggle. How, how did you go? Did you, I guess mm. because you've got um, employment, I know it still evolves around the music industry, but was was having a job at yeah. Mayton a, a good sort of solid anchor for you? Yeah, it was. We had a period of time where the Mayton factory was actually shut because the restrictions wouldn't allow manufacturing um, for about, uh, about two months. So I was at home uh, during that time. It was, I found it at first I was quite happy to not play gigs and have a break because I think I'd been touring a lot and um, playing a lot plus working full time and I was maybe a little bit burnt out. So when when it sort of the lockdown first happened, it was almost like a relief to me, yep. <laughs> um, which is probably no one's ever said that before. But um, I kind of enjoyed having a bit of time. I actually didn't pick up a guitar for four months uh, wow. at, for, during the first lockdown. Um even though I had a lot of time, I sort of started doing, I was still working during the day, um, but I just started doing other things. Um, like a lot of people took up running as I did, um, you know, just doing other things and sort of having a bit of a break after like a long period of time of, um, yeah, doing a lot of music stuff, which is probably good because eventually I sort of realised that I really miss playing gigs because that's kind of the thing that inspires me the most about playing music is playing for other people. Yep. Um, don't really get off on practicing on my own or recording by myself. I love I love playing to an audience. You know, I like I like the the gig vibes. So, yeah, yeah, it was difficult. Um, but but Melbourne Melbourne's such a great place that as soon as gigs came, as soon as the lockdowns were sort of over, the gigs were full again. It didn't take long for venues to be booking everyone again, and there was good crowds at every gig. So people yep. came back straight away. No, no one was scared. You know. Yeah, and good. I think pe- it made people realise that um, how much they needed music in their life as not only um, a social sort of scene to catch up with their friends, but to sort of fulfil that need in in you know in themselves to to get a fix of some good music, you know, feel sort of fill their soul up a bit with you know good tunes and yeah, and just that getting back in the community as well. So I, th- I think yeah, definitely. definitely come back stronger than ever and people, you know, even though capacity yep. was smaller, I know here in Tassie we, we did okay. We didn't cop as many lockdowns as you guys in Melbourne but I know that venues and um, audience members were quite happy to, to pay more for the privilege of a smaller size room or a more intimate show perhaps and mm. and just sort of everyone but knew that musicians were doing changed. it hard. So they were happy yep. to financially make it work as well you know so yeah it's been a nice yeah. little when you think about it oh sorry yeah. I was just gonna yeah. say when you think about it gig prices had sort of stayed the same for you know, like probably 15 or 20 years you know um yeah. the 10 dollar entry or whatever and now it's quite common for a local band to be charging 20 to 40 dollars for a show 
which which is what they deserve, you know, I think. And people are people here at least in Melbourne are quite happy to pay that, uh, especially yep. if it's like someone's launch or something. Um, which I don't think it would have been the case before the pandemic that people would have necessarily paid that much for a local band, but uh, it seems to be the norm now and people are copying it. So it's good. It's great. So I've noticed you play, you play guitar with quite a few different people around town. Give us a little rundown of who you're working with at the moment, Jess. So mainly, mainly playing with a, a band called Hana and Jesse Lee's Bad Habits, which is a sort of alt country band that I started back in Adelaide uh, probably about eight years ago with uh, my friend Hana, who's a singer-songwriter. Um, and we've sort of started off as a duo when another band that we were in broke up and then we've kind of got band members here. So that's the main, main one that I'm doing at the moment. playing with Cash Savage and The Last Drinks, which are a pretty well-known Melbourne band uh, prior to the lockdowns and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, did a few tours with them overseas in Europe and we did a lot of shows throughout Australia. Cool. And, uh, yeah, got to do some big venues and stuff with them, which was really great. And, uh, yeah, I made the decision that, you know, I would leave the band about a month before the pandemic, mainly because I, I was finding it hard to take so much time off work for the tours they wanted to do and keep my job. So I decided that yeah. I would I would um, quit the band instead of the job, which it was a hard decision to make, to be honest. But in the end, you know, the, the lockdowns happened and I probably didn't need to quit. So <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have been going anywhere anyway. So, yeah. yeah. But you never know. Um, yeah, I was. I did feel fortunate to have, have um, work while, while it was all happening. So, yeah. Yep. Um, and who else are you playing with at the moment? Uh, okay. And also been playing with a, a band with Georgia State Line a little bit. Uh, yep. Played with them up in Tamworth, filling in for their usual guitarist and I've played with them on a few other things and, yep. yeah, just getting in, in the scene a bit more with some of the more country sort of stuff. So, yeah, learning a lot and got a lot to learn because it's a lot lot different to playing what I've probably played in the past. So, yeah. Yeah. you sort of got to tame the attitude back a bit typically. Yes. Um, and, and arrangements Stay a bit that, more sober at the gig as well. <laughs> yeah, stay sober, stick to the arrangement, learn your part. Yeah. It's yeah. funny, I, um, I've been doing a, a Beatles, I wouldn't say it's a tribute band, but we do like about two or three shows a year of Beatles albums or we'll sort of try and stick to a theme and the players are great, real good people, fun to hang out with. But I, I kind of took the first gig as like, oh, yeah, I'll be right. I know the songs. You know, I've sort of heard them a million times. I'll be right. But far, I went to the first rehearsal and I was like, geez, I really need to know my part. It's like real part music. 
that's one thing that I think oh, yeah. playing blues and improvised sort of music, it's it's quite free and you just go with, especially as a singer, I suppose, I, I can sort of lead the band and so it was nice yeah. for me to actually go, no, you need to learn this song. It's got to have this tone. You've got to go through Beatles this arrangement. guitar parts are great. Oh, they're amazing. I totally underrated it until you, you pick it were apart. Were you playing George or? We swapped it around. We kind of just did whoever yep. might have been singing might have done the easier part or, yeah, we, we weren't quite in costume. It wasn't that like full on regimented in who's well, doing who. I've got some friends in Adelaide who do that. Yeah, right. Um, they've got a band called the Lady Beatles and it's all female um, Beatles cover band and they've been doing it for 20 years um, cool. and, and they've got the Sergeant Pepper's outfits and everything. <laughs> really uh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I totally underestimated the um, guitar parts and, and the song arrangements because those songs just need it, you know. You can't, you can't veer off that track, especially because mm. the whole song just gets thrown around otherwise, so. Yeah, it was a good thing for me to learn. Yeah, yeah. I grew up listening to a lot of um, a lot of the Beatles when when I was a kid. Like that was one of the only sort of CDs we had. Um, and now listening to like listening to Buck Owens and and a lot of like fifties um, sort of rockabilly stuff as well. You realise how much of the early Beatles stuff as well. There's and the guitar style came from from those guitarists like Gene Vincent yeah, and absolutely. and all that sort of stuff. I, I didn't know because I'd never heard the actual original music that they were referencing. Um, yep. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting to tie it all together, I guess. Yeah, cool. And, um, oh, yeah, you've been teching a bit as well, guitar teching for a few hmm. bands. So that's another way to get out and about. Um how did how did that come about? Was that through the Maiden thing or just through friends and, and the music scene in Melbourne? Yeah, kind kind of through friends really. So um, I sort of sort of made friends with Brendan Love, who's the the bass player of of the Teskey Brothers, and um, their sound engineer and stage tech also used to work with Cash Savage. So there was a bit of a connection there as well. And cool. the the guy who normally texts for the Teskies was uh, playing guitar in the Teskies because uh, Sam who's usually the guitarist, he, he couldn't make a few gigs. And um, so they asked me to come on board as as a tech, which was really fun because I hadn't, hadn't really done it before. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's a good way to sort of travel around and see, see a big show and a big production as well. Like the last ones I did with them, they were touring with Jimmy Barnes doing his Soul Deep tour. Oh, yep, yep. And so they were op- opening yep. act for him. And, yeah, it's like I've never been it you know, behind the scenes at like Rod Laver Arena or any of those sort of things. So it's good to see how it all runs. Yeah, it's a different machine, isn't it? Like it's so mm. structured and everyone's schedule is, you know, mapped out for them and, God, some of those hallways behind those massive venues are just crazy. You can get lost quite, quite easily. Definitely, yeah. So well, what sort of things did you learn in regards to teching? Was I'm guessing most of the tunes are pretty standard tunings, tuning-wise. We are sort of just doing – yeah. Like switchovers and stuff. Yeah, a lot of it. Like when when you hear the word guitar tech, when they first asked me, I was like, I don't know how to fix guitars. Like I know the basic sort of things, but like you know, if something really broke, I wouldn't know what to do. Hopefully, they don't hear that. Uh, (laughs) But it's uh, the guitar teching, like the live stage stuff, is more about setting up the backline. Um, being organised for guitar changes, tuning, um, restrings if they need to be done. 
Yep. Um, setting the stage as well, like, you know, putting the pedals where the, the player wants it, making sure everything's taped down, making sure everything's working and, and sounds coming out. Um, yeah, just being organized. Cause like they're, like they're, like you say, they're, they're set up and stuff's pretty simple. I don't think I could deal with someone with rack systems and things yeah. like that. Yep. Um, but they, they had a couple of guitars each They they play in standard tuning and they use quite heavy strings, so they're not not breaking strings every second song or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so it's just yeah, guitar changes, and yeah, just anytime something goes wrong, being able to sort of quickly jump in and change a lead over or yep or change a hi hat stand or whatever you need to do. Um, yeah, it's is good fun actually, and I, and I have learned a few more things about actually things that might go wrong and you know, adjusting necks and stuff like that since I've been doing it. So, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, Something I'd cool. like to do more of and I think there's a bit of work out there for it as well at the moment because I think a lot of people in the industry who are more behind the scenes have moved on to other things. So sound engineers, stage techs, uh, guitar techs are really sought after at the moment in Melbourne especially. Um, there's yeah, a lot sure. of work going around. Yep. Um, yeah, because a lot of tours are happening all at once, so everyone's kind of booking people up. So I've been asked to do a few other things that I couldn't do. Um, but, yeah, if you've got any skills and that kind of stuff, I'd recommend, yeah, trying to get get the word out there, I guess, yeah. amongst people you know. Yeah. That's cool. It's definitely um, good to see touring acts sort of back on the scene again now. But, yeah, like you said, everyone's everyone's trying to do it at the moment too. It's getting very, very busy out there. Oh, they really are. Yeah, my partner's a sound engineer and and um, she's got so much work and always being asked to do things, especially last minute too because someone will have booked someone in and then that person gets sick or yeah. or whatever or can't make it somewhere and then, yeah, so it's, yeah, there's a lot of work going going for people in the industry which is great after two years of, of nothing for those people who used it as their full-time work, I guess. Yep. And I guess guitar teching is a good way for a guitar player to um – just see how it's done on another level too because it's to get to that level of, of staging where you're playing for, I don't know, five to 10,000 people, that's, you know, that's the top end of town. So if, if you get to sort of rub shoulders or, or just, just like you said, see how that that industry sort of works at that level, um, it's really inspiring and, and it's, it's such a well-oiled machine. Like people are just delegated for that job. They do the job. And, mm. you know, you've got a phone call, you know, you've got a phone number to, to call any time of the day if you need to sort of iron out a problem. And, yeah, it's it's definitely a good way to, if, if you can, you know, if you've got the skills, I suppose. But you also yeah. need good social skills too. I know that you sort of probably don't mingle with the artists so much, but it just just the ability to talk to other crew and, and, and stage sort of operators or venue operators or whatever, just just having that nice, casual, kind of easygoing manner about you definitely helps in that regard. Yeah, I think that's probably 90% of the job, I guess, is being easy to get along with and, and um, yeah, just being professional, I guess. And, um, you know, when you've got to t- travel with people too, you, not to be annoying and not to be a wanker, you know, like just yeah. be, be a normal person and, um, yeah, and... It's, it is good seeing like people at that professional level and even how, how they do things like sound checking and you can take that back to your own, like my own local gig down at the gem bar or something, you know, yeah. not playing all over the stage when someone's trying to like, you know, te- test them, the foldback speakers or something like that. Just all that kind of things that you don't really think of till you see 
a real professional sort of sound check occur, you go, oh, this is why they have sound checks. You know? <laughs> it's so the sound engineer can actually get a good sound for you. You know, yeah. everyone's not just playing at once, noodling yeah. all over the stage, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, tip, hot tip. And definitely don't noodle while the sound engineer is uh, bending down in front of your amp <laughs> trying to plug the mic in or something. Absolutely. That's my second tip. Yeah, that's another good hot tip. Because quite often, you know, they, they're putting a microphone in front of your amp and if you blast them, you, they're going to have ringing in their ears yeah. and you're not going to get sound. You're not going to sound very good. periphery for you at the moment musically? Hannah and I are going to record uh, some singles and then hopefully an album for our, our band. So we, we did an album about six years ago now, so we haven't really done anything since then, but we've got heaps of songs. So our aim sort of to release some new stuff finally, do some video clips and do some do some touring in Australia. So, so we play at Tamworth most years over the last mm-hmm. few years. So, yeah, aim is to head back up there and do some more shows in like probably around Sydney, Newcastle and, and back in Adelaide. So, yeah, try and get, get an album out basically within the next year is is the goal at this stage. Yep. And do you guys have a go-to studio or you have um, some friends with home studios or how do you guys go about recording? Uh, well, we've been doing some demos just in our practice space. So we've got a kind of a friend has a practice space that they've got at the bottom of their office and, and they allow us to practice there for, for free every week, which is amazing because it costs nice. usually about $100 to rehearse in Melbourne, uh, especially if you have to hire backline and stuff like that. So we did some demo recordings there, but we, we're planning on heading to an actual studio with a producer. We're just having having a, a look at a few dif- different people and trying to work out who to go with. Because mm-hmm. our last album we recorded uh, with Paul Maybury and, and Nick Finch, which was a really great experience, but it was a bit different to what I'd probably do again. We, we recorded it all um, live without headphones. Yep. Uh, including the vocals. So we did some overdubs of some guitar solos, but most of the tracks and the vocals were done live, which was, which was interesting, but it was a bit hard because we, we hadn't really rehearsed that much. So it's probably something I'd rather do with a really well-oiled band, yeah. I guess. I was going to say that, that does really give you a nice performance, especially if you're used to performing live in front of a room and you've got, you know, that energy of a live interaction between the players um, but yeah, I think you really need to be a well-rehearsed, um, outfit with the songs, like just sitting in that right zone. Um, whereas if you're still sort mm. of. Especially with tempos and everything too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were the, were the vocals kind of in a booth or anything or are you still, were they sort of on the floor with all the other instruments? I think she was just, I don't know why I can't remember because I should be able to remember, but I think she was just standing, <laughs> we were all sort of around in a circle. Um, the, the songs weren't like super loud, we, but I think we must have had PA speaker 
or something. But yeah, it was, I was very sick when we did the recording. I always seem to get the flu whenever I have to record an album. (laughs) It's like a, it's a reoccurring thing. It's happened to me every time I've recorded, I've literally been like very sick. I think because I always try and record in winter, which is not good for me. Uh, Yeah, Um, right. Yeah. So, um, so hopefully that doesn't happen next time. But yeah, it was, yeah, Hannah did a really good job with to, yeah, do the vocals live. I think it's not, not an easy thing to do. Also Absolutely. a bit of pressure knowing that you don't want to stuff it up because then everyone will have to do another take of the song. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Huge pressure. Um, that's cool though, but it's, it's good to do that stuff as well, isn't it, to to sort of see how one technique works and then maybe try another technique next time or if you have the luxury mm. of, of experimenting like that, I think it's so good because definitely I, I, I'm in the belief of performance – totally overrides tonality or recording um, prowess. You know, like if something's engineered well, it doesn't make a good record. Like it starts at the performance. So, yeah, I'm mm. a huge believer of that. But so if it sounds good. Some of the best good, recordings are demos. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, like you said, there's a, we're always learning, always trying new things. So it's good to sort of good to get the learning happening. Yeah, definitely. And do you do most of your recording at, at home? You've got your own studio set up? Yeah, Ever since I was a kid, my, my dad had like an old eight track reel to reel, just a sort of pretty crappy Fuzztex one. But that was a good introduction to microphones and, and mixing desks and and rooms. I have I have done records in professional environments, but for I I guess it boils down to financial uh, um, yeah. reasons. Mind you, you got to buy the gear in the first place, but. To have my own facility, I, it's so good because we, we can have the time. You know, we're not looking at a clock every time we press the red button going, oh, geez, you know, there goes a thousand bucks. Yeah. The, but the downfall well, is. I kind of like that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. the downfall is um, you can procrastinate so easily. So with, with a booked in yeah. facility, you have your, you know, day or few days or your week booked in. You get in, you get it done. You've kind of got that, you know, your blinkers on, you're totally on, on point. Whereas if it's just mm. up in your, your, your comfortable <laughs> your comfortable area, yeah. you can just go there whenever you want and you just edit or you can just lay a track down. And So pros and cons, totally. Yeah. But I love it. I, I, it's, it's one of my happy places, I think, the recording environment. I just love, you know, trying things out and putting a microphone somewhere that you might not, not have done last time and just try things out and it's cool. It's fun. Yeah. I need to learn from you because I've still – Still not entirely comfortable with recording. Um, yeah, fine with playing live, um, but as soon as I press record, I'm like, oh, you know, I think it, it does. It probably just comes down from from not doing it enough or not doing it regularly. You know, I'd get in a bit of a groove of doing it a lot yep. and then I won't do it for a few years and then, then I kind of spook myself every time I think about doing it, which is why yep. we've been doing demos and, and things before heading into the studio, also knowing it's probably going to cost a bit more this time. Uh, just want to make sure we're prepared and practised up and know what arrangements we're going to do and things yeah. like that. Yeah, I think pre-production is a great idea. Just to hear the songs back and see what they, they sit like because, you know, what you hear in your head might be different to what someone else hears and and to sort of talk about sounds and and grooves and things like that as a group instead of just like going, okay, cool, I'll see yeah. the end of the song, you know, like head down, bum up sort of stuff. So it's good to analyse a little bit, not overanalyse, you've got to be careful. Don't want to lose, yeah. lose that magic. Yeah, totally. Cool. Well, I reckon we might wrap it up, Jess. Thanks very much for hanging out with us on the podcast tonight. 
and um, happy travels to to Tassie. I'm going to miss you. I'm heading over to Echuca for a blues festival there tomorrow. You're so to Victoria, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. We're trading trading states for a few days. Yeah. Are you playing on a paddle steamer, or is that part of the the festival? Uh, not this year. I have done a solo. Actually, no, I've done a, a band gig on a paddle steamer over there too before. Um, but yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome. That is a, a good way to listen to music and to play music. The chugga chugga of the big paddles. Definitely. Cool. Well, all the best. And hopefully we can catch up again, maybe in right, Tamworth thanks. or somewhere or when you're down in Tassie next. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Right on. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for listening, folks, to another episode of Say It With Guitars. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, share it around to your mates, leave a good review, and hopefully we'll see you next time.